Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your throne this morning. Lord, to participate in the worship of yourself. The worship that you began before the foundation of the world. And you never needed us to worship you. For the worship that you need, only you yourself can give. So we only come to participate in what is already happening. And Lord, we praise you and glorify you for your son, Jesus Christ, who has rendered the perfect worship on our behalf. He has given to you all that we could not give to you. And we honor you for his faithfulness to do that which we could not do ourselves. And we come here as your people, as your people who need more cleansing, who need to be cleansed by the blood of Christ that goes deeper than the stain is gone. We need the blood of Christ. We need the life in Christ. We need the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we may be awakened from our death where we were dead in trespasses and sins and be awakened to the spiritual life, the life that is in Christ Jesus. So Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit will give life to the words that you have given us. will give life to the hearts and to the ears that you have given to this hearing. And Lord, we pray and thank you for this word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are part four of baptism, the teaching, the biblical teaching of the doctrine of baptism. This is a doctrine that is taken for granted, and there's a lot of assumed knowledge of what baptism is or is not. A lot of people just associate it with just dipping into water and out, but there's rarely ever any significant teaching as to have a theological understanding of what these things are about. And because of that, we have a lot of traditions in the church, traditions of sprinkling children and making them Christians when they are not yet Christians or before they can make a confession of Christ. We have people doing all kinds of craziness because of a lack of proper teaching of this and any other doctrine that relates to Christianity. So today we are going to be in the book of Romans. We are going to close our teaching on baptism from the book of Romans, chapter 6. And we are going to hear Apostle Paul telling us about the significance of our baptism. What the believer's baptism really mean? What does it mean for one who has been baptized in Christ Jesus? 
Do you just get dipped into the water and then just continue to live the way that you want to live? And in the light of what we have learned, which we are going to go back to and just hit some of the highlights of the things that we have read and taught and discussed, that we may tie this theology together, this teaching together, so that we have a proper understanding of what baptism is all about. So, if you will with me, go to Romans 6. Romans 6, and we are going to be going through chapter, sorry, Romans 6, verses 1 to 14. Romans 6, verses 1 to 14. We are going to read the verses, and then we'll introduce some background, and then go back to the verses. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace." Baptism, as we have learned, has many elements and levels of understanding that we have to have if we are to interpret it correctly. There are various elements of baptism that range from just the physical aspect, the physical aspect of getting dipped into water to the spiritual significance of that. And there's an ordering of them which if ignored or if not understood rightly will tend to have people 
overemphasize the insignificant over the significant. So it is important for us to understand the theology of baptism. And when we talk about the theology, we are saying God's understanding of what this is supposed to mean. What is God saying by this act of baptism? And it's important for us to understand the theology of baptism because then that way we can honor the work of Christ for what it is. Baptism is not just an isolated event. It is something that is telling you about the work of Christ himself. So it's important for us to understand what the theology is because also if we don't, we tend to reverse the order of the work of salvation. Somehow we end up thinking that we can help God in our own salvation. That we can initiate people into salvation and then God will finish the rest. We do not initiate anybody into salvation. Salvation is 100% the work of the Lord. Sinners do not help God in salvation. It's God who does all the work of salvation because we are the ones who need saving. We are the ones who need to be saved from sin. And because of sin, we are blinded to our need of a savior. And Apostle Paul in Romans 6 is going to tell us that sin used to be a master. Sin was a master that controlled every being of us. So there was no way that of ourselves and our own resources we could ever run away from our master. And with that in mind, let me remind ourselves of what we have learned, learned so far. We have so far discussed or talked about the doctrine of baptism and what it means. The Greek word baptizo, B-A-P-T-I-Z-O, is transliterated to baptism. Baptizo is the Greek word that was transliterated to baptism and was always understood, was always understood to mean the immersion or dipping of something into some medium. It always was used in the context, both in the secular world, and even as it migrated into the church, it was used in the context of dipping something into some substance or some medium. And so it was not used for sprinkling. The word was not used for sprinkling. And most importantly, we recognized that the baptism that saves is that which God alone does by his spirit. The baptism that saves is that which God alone does by his spirit. And the baptism of John was a water baptism. 
And this had a purpose. The baptism of John had a purpose of preparing for the coming of the Messiah. It had a purpose of turning the hearts of of the children to their fathers as they were getting ready to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know also that the Lord Jesus Christ was baptized by John with the water baptism. And this was for the initiation of our Lord into his ministry. And he said to John, it was for the fulfillment, fulfillment of all righteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ did not need to be baptized with the baptism of John. Because the baptism of John was a baptism of repentance. The Lord Jesus Christ was not a sinner and had no sin from which to repent. Rather, he was baptized to begin his ministry and also to bring us into union with him. To bring us into union with him. We are the ones who needed to repent from our sins. Afterwards, the Lord Jesus Christ was baptized on the cross. And in the New Testament teaching, the theology that really matters in the context of the life of the believer is the baptism of Christ on the cross. This is where our attention has to be if we have to understand what baptism is about. And this baptism, as we noted, the baptism of Christ was an immersion or dipping into God's wrath and judgment on account of our sins. That's the baptism. And it is by this baptism that Christ removed our body of sins that was laid on him as our substitute, as our substitute according to Colossians 2, 11 and 12. And it is this baptism that sets the stage and gives significance to any other baptisms that follow. It is this baptism that matters. If this baptism does not happen, we can dip each other in water forever and ever. It will just be getting wet. Christ has to be baptized on the cross. And the water baptism that we have is only symbolic of the baptism of Christ himself. The substance of baptism is in the baptism of Jesus Christ. And this baptism on the cross, not the water baptism that was done to him by John the Baptist. So our Lord, having been baptized by God on our behalf, he in turn baptizes as the believers, not with fire, but with the Holy Spirit. The believer is baptized with the Holy Spirit and not with fire because the baptism with fire is not for believers, it's for judgment. So Christ was baptized with fire of God's judgment on the cross. 
the believer is baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Christ has immersed us or he dips us into the medium not of water but of the Holy Spirit. Christ immerses the believer into the medium of the Holy Spirit and not in water that we may be sanctified that is separated out to him we are called out ones the church the ecclesia is a gathering of the called out ones called out from the world and the calling out of God's people from the world happens when there's baptism by the Holy Spirit on the believer. But even more, the baptism by the Holy Spirit is that Christ may mark us or brand us as his own. The immersion into the medium of the Holy Spirit is a marking. Is a marking of us as God's own possession. And the immersion brings a permanent change to the believer as what happens to the cucumber. To the cucumber when it is dipped into the medium of brine and vinegar to make pickles. So as it were, we are getting pickled by the Holy Spirit. So the immersion into the Holy Spirit brings a permanent change to the spiritual nature of the believer and it imparts a spiritual awakening that is a spiritual resurrection from the dead. The dipping, the dipping by the Holy Spirit confers or gives new qualities or characteristics or flavor to the person. If you have been dipped into the Holy Spirit, you are going to have a change of flavor. Just as the cucumbers will change to pickles. There has to be a change of flavor. The person who has been dipped in the Holy Spirit begins to walk by the Spirit and to have the fruit of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is given in baptism as a seal or mark of our salvation so that any who possesses the Holy Spirit or is possessed by the Holy Spirit confesses that Jesus is Lord. The Holy Spirit is given as a mark of possession and those who are so marked. This is very important. Those who are so marked by the Holy Spirit, they have the ink of the blood of Christ on them. And it's an ink that cannot be removed. It cannot be deleted. It cannot be erased. So we learn that the giving or baptism with the Holy Spirit 
is only the function of the Messiah. It is the function of the Messiah who comes and immerses God's people. He pours the Holy Spirit on God's people as God had promised in the Old Testament that in the time to come, he himself was going to pour down his spirit on his people. And so Christ shows up and it is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And if Christ baptizes with the Holy Spirit, what does that make him? It makes him God. And we learned that the baptism in, with, and by the Holy Spirit is for the giving of a new birth. Because the issue with sinners is not because they cannot speak in tongues. The problem that Christ is solving is not a tongue issue. It's an unbelief issue. It's a faith issue. The reason why Israel was taken into captivity was only for one reason. It was because of unbelief. So unbelief is the problem that the Messiah is coming and solving by the giving of the Holy Spirit. So men have a problem. And their problem is that they are obstinate people. They are stubborn and rebellious. Uncircumcised in their hearts. They are uncircumcised in their hearts. And the baptism with the Holy Spirit then is for the circumcision of the hearts of stubborn people. And the birthing of new spiritual life. The birthing of new spiritual life in those who were dead in trespasses and sins. So we argued from the scriptures that the significance and work of the Holy Spirit is not in the signs. Rather, the signs were given in the context of validating the gospel message just as the Lord Jesus Christ also was attested to Israel, to the Jews, through various miracle signs. So we see at the day of Pentecost, diverse signs, speaking in tongues. These signs were given to validate the inauguration of the church of Jesus Christ after he had died, rose, and was in heaven. And we see the same gifts in the church beyond the day of Pentecost. But as we learn from Apostle Paul, he tells us that it's not everyone who spoke in tongues. Rather, the Lord himself had given different gifts to the body of believers that they may work together for the edification of the body. So Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 14.22 told us that the signs were not for believers, but for unbelievers. And the tongues were given that those who did not believe could also hear the gospel message spoken to them in their own languages or that 
or their own tongues. And what that means is that in the context of the church, that is the gathering of believers, signs are not needed where you have just a gathering of believers because signs are for unbelievers. And if there are any signs like speaking in tongues, there has to be interpretation. So the presence or absence of interpretation is a diagnostic tool to tell whether what is being said is authentic or not. So you can't have a body of believers that has 50, 100, 200 people who all claim to speak in tongues and yet there's not a single person who can interpret not even one of the messages. So the issue is interpretation. And Apostle Paul says, since God is not of confusion, he would not allow his church to continue to do the things where there's not edification. Because Christ would have us know about his work and what he has done. So Apostle Paul said, in the church, therefore, five words that bring understanding are more needful than 10,000 words with an unknown tongue. Because words with understanding bring edification. And I was talking with the kids early this morning, and there was a lot of exchange of good words with understanding. Miss Carmen was telling me that God is three persons, but they are one God. I was like, amen to that. So that's giving understanding. So tongue, therefore, as we land, are not a necessary sign of one's salvation, because if they were, then they would be a standard to all believers in the church. And because of that, we should not elevate them beyond what the Lord has told us about them. They have to be placed in their appropriate place. So now to the practice of baptism as the Lord's ordinance. The Lord Jesus Christ left us two ordinances that we have to practice as a church. We have baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are the two ordinances. And as I have said, those two ordinances give us a summary of the work that the Lord did in our salvation. The ordinance of baptism was instituted by the Lord himself and is only symbolic it's only symbolic of the actual and true baptism that happened to the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross or in his death burial and resurrection it's symbolic of the work that happened to our Lord Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And that's why he said to the Jews who were seeking a sign, he said to them, no sign shall be given to this generation. 
but the sign of Jonah. And we know the sign of Jonah. He was in the belly of the well three days and three nights. So what we see in Jonah is a type of the death of Christ and the burial of Christ right there in the belly. And we know the well went and vomited him out. So the vomiting of Jonah is a type of the resurrection of Christ. So that's the sign. So the water baptism that is administered in the church does not confer the water baptism that is administered in the church does not give any spiritual benefits whatsoever, but rather is an acknowledgement of the spiritual benefits that God has already given on the believer in the baptism of Jesus. And since the Lord Jesus was hung publicly, the Lord Jesus Christ was hung publicly. He was made a public spectacle. The believer by water baptism is making a public, public profession of their identification with the suffering of Christ and his resurrection. And this water baptism is for one who has been born again and has repented and is conscious of their sinfulness and their need for a savior. Therefore, on this one, it is not wise to rush into baptizing our children before they have understood what this is all about. Salvation cannot be expedited like mail service. Salvation is not a drive-through order. It cannot be expedited. It happens, it happens according to Tony in God's appointed time. And yes, as parents, as people, we, 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 we want to have our fears pacified. We, we are afraid that our children may just die before they make the confession. But we have to trust the Lord. We, we want our children to be saved, but we have to trust the Lord because if the Lord waited to subdue us, the Lord kept us from stumbling during our own days of darkness. He did not give us over to darkness and to our sin. He kept us and he brought us to himself. And if he was able to do that with you and I, he is able to do that with the kids. He will keep them. They are not going anywhere. So the Lord has to give these children time to mature in their sins. That he may harvest them for himself, that they too may sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. They have to know their wretchedness. Because if they don't know their wretchedness, they cannot sing amazing grace. And they have to 
experience their unfitness for heaven that they may sing also with us and say, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the sweetest confession that you could ever hear from these little ones. That Lord save me or else I die. That's the confession of a heart that has been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And we want them to cry out with Peter. We want our children to cry out with Peter when they see the wind. When they see the contrary wind of life hitting them. When they see themselves sinking. When they see themselves afraid, frightened, and they're sinking. We want them to say, Lord, save me. We want them to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Lest I perish. And we want them to hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want them to go and read this story and hear this and immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why do you doubt? The Lord Jesus Christ immediately stretches out his hand to the one who is sinking. The one who is sinking and they call out on his name and say, Lord, save me. And they have to feel by faith the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ stretching out for them. They have to feel the hand of the Lord stretching out for them. And even though he rebukes them, he will not let go of their hands. You see, the Lord rebuked Peter only after he had his hand on him. And we want these children to know that the Lord will rebuke them even though he has his hands on them. And I pray also for us, the adults, that the Lord would rebuke us but in the safety of his blood. We want the Lord to rebuke us in the safety of his blood. You see, people who come to Christ before they have smelled their sin cause a lot of trouble. Before they have really had a good sniff of themselves, they cause a lot of trouble. Because to know your sin is necessary for humility and gentleness. Amen. To know your sin is necessary for your own good. You need to know your sin so that your eyes can be opened to the glory of the work of Christ. So, Let's keep holding, let's keep holding to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is faithful to all his works. 
Salvation is a work of God. It's the work of Christ and he never fails in any of the work that he does. Now there's some understanding of baptism that we are going to build and connect with everything that we've said and that will lead us to Romans 6. When we're talking about baptism, as I said, scripturally it's used to mean to dip or to immerse. But Apostle Paul also uses the language for uniting and identification. For uniting and identification as in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 1 to 4. And this is what he says. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers just be looking for all. All our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. The Apostle Paul here lists the spiritual privileges that the children of Israel had as a result of their salvation from Egypt. So as they left Egypt, these were the spiritual privileges that they had collectively as a body of God's people. And as he does so, he tells them that they had these privileges in unity. And particularly, he says, they were all baptized into Moses. They were all baptized into Moses. That is, into the covenant of which Moses was the mediator. It's Moses who took them from Egypt across the Red Sea and into the wilderness. It's Moses who received the covenant through whom God ratified the old covenant on Mount Sinai. So they were collectively baptized into Moses. So Moses is their figurehead. He is their head. He is their representative. So they were united with their head Moses who became the figure that they trusted. And by this typical baptism, so the uniting here is typifying baptism. They were brought under the obligation of acting according to the law and ordinances of Moses. So in like manner, this is what Apostle Paul is saying. So in like manner, the Corinthian Christians had been delivered through a miraculous salvation just as had happened to Israel and had been baptized into their new mediator who is the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom they also trusted just as the Israelites trusted in Moses. 
So Christians are said to be baptized into Christ. Do you see that? We are baptized into Christ. The children of Israel were baptized into Moses. So if we are baptized in Christ, what that means is we are brought by this baptism under obligation to keep the ordinances of the gospel. And because of this baptism, we are now being identified and are in union with the Lord Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So the physical practice of the ordinance of baptism for one who has repented and believed involves the dipping or immersion and bringing out of water for the purpose of demonstrating their union and identification with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord. And this the Lord had been teaching all this time. The Lord is the master teacher. So the physical aspect of our water baptism is only for a testimony. It's only for a testimony of the spiritual reality that is in Christ. It is speaking to the spiritual union and identification. Those, those words are very, very important. The union and identification with Christ is just it's beautiful understanding. It's talking to the spiritual union and identification of the cleansing of our sin that happened through the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. And this physical aspect is done to a believer who has already been born again and who is making a public witness and profession of their union and identification with Jesus Christ. And the dipping into the water, as I said then, is just telling us of the dipping that has happened spiritually. It's telling us of the inward reality of the circumcision that has happened to the heart of the person. So it is the heart of the person through a new birth experience that experiences the cleansing and not their physical body. And the first installment of our cleansing, remember, the goal of immersion or dipping is to clean. The goal of immersion or dipping, whether in water or in the Holy Spirit, is for cleaning. The physical dipping that we do ourselves in water is just for physical washing. But the dipping of the Holy Spirit is for spiritual washing. So the first installment of the cleansing in the believer is repentance and faith. But there's more for us to understand about this teaching. There's more for us to understand. There's 
if you still remember the indicative and imperative. The indicative says these are the things that God and Christ have done. Christ has died for your sins. God has justified you in Christ. God has given you the Holy Spirit. So all the work of God in Christ and the Holy Spirit come under the indicatives. These are things that God has done and this is who you are because of God. The imperative then says because this is who you are because of God then get baptized. Then do this. It's not saying get baptized to be chosen of God. You are getting baptized because you are chosen of God. So the person who is water baptized only does so because they are already in union with Christ. How do you get in union with Christ? By God's election. God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's Ephesians chapter 1. So that's indicative. You are in union with Christ because God has put you in Christ by election. So we do not get baptized so as to be born again or to be in union with Christ as some will probably think when they baptize the babies. We can't baptize the babies. Because even if we look at John's baptism, it was a baptism that required a turning away from sin. It required repentance. And children are not there yet to be able to make that decision. So believers are commanded by the Lord to be water baptized. And this is an imperative. Okay? We are getting water baptized not to become Christians, but because we are Christians. And now with respect to the believer, their water baptism is a reminder to them of who they actually are in Christ. It is a reminder of their placement or position in Christ. A reminder to them of the life they are now supposed to live in the light of what Christ has done for them. Amen. The sinner is reminded that when they came to Christ, there was a change of state, a change of masters. When they came to Christ, they were an old man, or an old woman, you should not say that, but for gender equality, they were an old man living in sin, but in Christ they are to live in the newness of their resurrected life. And Christ now is their new master, is their new master who bought them at the cost of his own blood which is available to us by faith. And now, this is what Apostle Paul is going to develop for us in Romans 6, and says, 
the baptism is not just for you to be dipped in, into water and then continue to live whichever way you want. There's some understanding that you have to have as to what is really happening here. You have to know what this is all about. Because it's important for your struggle with sin. It's important for you to know the significance of baptism because this is how you're going to overcome sin in your own life. So he says in Romans 6, verse 1 to 2. Now we are in Romans. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Shall we sin the more that grace may abound? Certainly not. And if you have some other translation, it will say may it never be. Or God forbid. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in sin? In the preceding chapter, that is in Romans 5, 19 to 21, this is what Apostle Paul has said. This is a continuation of the conversation that he started in the previous chapter. At the end of chapter 5, this is what Apostle Paul says. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So in the light of this discussion, the Apostle Paul then says in verse 1, he asks the classical question that many who misunderstand the gospel of grace would ask about the gospel and say, well, if grace rules over sin, why don't we then sin the more that grace may abound? And obviously, they don't understand it. Let's sin the more that grace may abound. And Apostle Paul was just basically saying that it's grace that sits on the throne. So there's no sin that you can commit that is beyond the ability of God to forgive. And the bigger the sin, the more grace is what? Is exalted. So where sin abounded, grace abounded the more. Grace always is on top. It doesn't matter how deep the sin, the Lord is able to forgive. Because in it, his grace is exalted. And then, of course, we have some people who think that because we are saying we are under grace, we are encouraging people to sin. And so they go and try to bring the law. To try and bring the law and say, no, we have to, we can't tell people that they are not under the law. They will go crazy. So we have to bring the law, but what they don't understand is the gospel does come with power of restraint. The gospel has the power which the law could not. So you do not need to bring the law for obedience. The gospel itself has the power to do it. 
But the Apostle Paul says, not being under the law of Moses is not a license for you to sin. Yes, the Holy Spirit brings the power. The Holy Spirit is the dynamite. He is the power. The Greek word that's translated power there is dynamite. That sounds like dynamite. Yes. That's dynamite. So the gospel comes with the dynamite, the dynamite power of the Holy Spirit to bring the life of the believer in con- into conformance to what the gospel teaches. So the one who is justified, the one who is justified freely should, instead of sinning the more, that grace may abound, they should rather use their new position to lead a holy life. They cannot purposefully continue to walk in sin. And the apostle here uses the word continue. And the understanding is, is to purposefully or to habitually yield to sin. And believers are here exhorted not to succumb to sin's demands. Grace does not encourage believers to sin just because God forgives them. And certainly does not say, go back wild. Sin the more that grace may abound. But what we know of grace is that when you sin, grace is able to bend law and come and pick you up. The law is straight. It cannot bend. The law will continue to hit you. Every time that you sin, the law never says, or you are forgiven. The law always says, I'm sorry, try again. So the Apostle Paul says, may it never be. God forbid. That's not how this thing works. You are not being saved so that you can sin the more. You are being saved unto righteousness. And so the Apostle uses death language to say, if one dies, if one dies, or like one who dies. They cannot be controlled by things that are in the sphere of where they used to be. That is where they died from. Here's an example. If you die today, the government cannot come and ask you to pay for a speeding ticket that you got before you died. For to die means to be moved from one place to a different place where the laws are different. Death dissolves the power of jurisdiction. Death dissolves the power of jurisdiction or control that the laws of this life had on a person. And as those who died in Christ, because God sees us as having died in Christ. We should not be seeking again to be controlled by the rules and ordinances 
and bylaws of sin. Because sin is the old place that we used to live before we died with Christ and were moved to a new place. So now that we have been joined to the heavenly life in Christ, sin has no more hold and control over us. So in the same manner spiritually, we died to the sphere of sin and have been translated to a different sphere that is ruled or governed by different spiritual laws. Before we came to Christ, we were governed by the law of sin. And that was in our old man. That is the corrupted nature. When the Bible talks about the old man, it's talking about the corrupted sinful nature. But in Christ, we became a new man and we were put under a different administration. The law of the old administration of sin have no more jurisdiction over us that we should answer to its demands as to obey it. So in verse 3 he says, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, Jesus were baptized into his death? So the Apostle Paul is now explaining what we are supposed to understand of baptism in relation to our own lives. The Apostle says, It is important for the believer to know who they are in Christ. It is important for the believer to know who they are in Christ, that they are a new creature and they have a divine nature. And for this reason, he uses no three times. In verse 3 and verse 9, listen to what he says. He says, knowing your position in Christ is important to keep you from sinning. That's the basis of his teaching in the whole chapter. He says, if you are going to overcome sin, you have to know who you are. You have to know who you are. You have to know the doctrines of the Bible. Because without them, you are going to fall prey to sin again. And he is saying, in another words, there is a therefore that comes from what you know or you don't know. You live what you know. And for Christians, he says, you have to understand baptism. If you have a proper understanding of baptism, that is what drives you to conquer sin. So he tells us the knowing, the knowledge. What kind of knowing? What kind of knowing are we to have? He tells us that in verse 3, that you were baptized into the death of Christ. That is the first basis of your knowing. That is, you were placed or immersed in union with the death of Christ. And because of that, the old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. That is in verse 6. 
So the old man, the old sinful man, was crucified with Christ. And crucifixion is for death. The cross was an instrument of death. And the old man was crucified with Christ on the cross. But the old man did not resurrect with Christ. Sin did not rise from the dead. It's only Christ who rose from the dead. So the apostle says you need to know that. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. So the believer, because of this, has a new life in Christ forever. The believer has a new life in Christ forever. We are not going in and out of life. We possess the life of Christ forever. And that's why the Lord Jesus Christ will say, He will give us eternal life. So in verse 4 he says, Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. So the apostle says, Our union with Christ in his death and resurrection is the essence of, of our water baptism. When a born again believer gets baptized. This is what it signifies. By being placed under the water. He is proclaiming that he has died. And has been buried with Christ. And by being raised up from the water. He or she is proclaiming that they have been raised from the dead. With Christ to a newness of life. So the significance here of baptism is not necessarily in the formula. You can have the significance with either formula of baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or in the name of the Son. Because this is only a type of the substance that is in Christ Jesus. So when a believer comes to faith and gets baptized, God sees them only in Christ. When a believer comes and gets baptized, God only sees them in Christ. God credits everything that Christ did as having been done by them. He gets the believer to unite, identify, and possess everything that God accomplished in and through Jesus Christ in salvation. And if God punished and crushed Jesus on the cross, he sees the believer as crushed and punished on the cross. If God hears the groans and loud cries of Jesus weeping on the cross, God sees you as the one who was groaning and crying. If God's wrath was satisfied on Christ, he also sees his wrath as spent and satisfied on the believer. If God raised Christ to newness of life, God also reckons 
the believer is also raised to the newness of the life that is in Christ. So what is that saying? It is saying that the believer who is in Christ has died to sin and has thus been freed from sin. They've died to the penalty of sin and have been freed from the condemnation that sin brings. They've been they've They've, they've died to the judgment that sin would bring. So that is the freedom of the gospel. The freedom of the gospel is saying, even though you stumble in some points with sin, sin has no more power to come and condemn you. So in verse 5 and 7, the apostle says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, here the Unification language, if we have been united together in the likeness of his death. So what we have in baptism, the dipping is the likeness of the death of Christ. Certainly, we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, for he who has died has been freed from sin. The crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ was the crucifixion of our own bodies of sin. And since we died with him, we were freed from sin. And here Apostle Paul personifies sin as a master from whom we had to be liberated from by death. Because remember, if you were a slave, one of the ways that you could escape slavery was only through death. Because you could never escape by your own power, by your own resources. So the apostle says, it's by death that you escaped from sin. But not your death, but the death of Christ. Before Christ, sin as a master ruled and reigned over us as its slaves. It controlled us, and as a result, we formed our habits and taste around the demands of our old master. But in Christ, we are free from his control and his guilt. If we sin, the old master would want to condemn us and say, but I told you so. But I told you so. But because of Christ, we say to sin and death, all death, where is your victory? All death, where is your sting? Remember the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is in the law. This is a relation that people do not understand when they argue about law and gospel. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. So you see, death, sin, and law are connected. Death, sin, and law are connected. Sin cannot come and accuse us because Christ has removed the law. Sin cannot come and accuse us because it does not have a law with which it, it can accuse you by. Amen. 
Christ nailed the law and the handwriting of ordinances that were opposed to us, he nailed them on the cross. And if the law is removed, if the law is removed, sin cannot condemn. And if sin cannot condemn, it cannot kill you anymore. You cannot sentence a man to death where there's no law to convict them. Christ removed the law of sin and death that condemned us. So we live not in the fear of sin and death, but in reverence to God as slaves to righteousness. This relation is very, 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 very important. I have a lot of important things. It's there in every sermon. But this is important for us to understand that there's a relation, it's a triangle. You have sin, law, and death. If you, sin is working because of law. Law is what incites sin. So if you remove the law, there's no sin to condemn you. And where there's no sin to condemn you, you can't be killed. So the theology of Apostle Paul is if Christ came and removed the law, then even if you sin, there's no law to condemn you because he nailed it on the cross. That is why the gospel is good news. It's not saying you don't sin anymore. It's saying there's no basis for you to be condemned. We shall bring a charge against God's elect. What are you going to charge me on? On what law have I broken? I haven't broken any law because with respect to Christ, I'm reckoned as one who has fulfilled all the law. Now, verse 8, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. So the believer is not only united to Christ through death, but also in resurrection. Salvation requires more than death. It requires that he who dies also lives. It requires a resurrection, for without a resurrection of the Savior, his death profits you nothing. And Apostle Paul would say, in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 20. Sorry. In 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 20. The resurrection is, is central to the message of the gospel. The resurrection is central to the hope that we have in Christ. The Apostle Paul says this in verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead... How do some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we have found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men 
the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is what he's just saying in one line. If Christ is not risen, you are still in your sins and you are hopeless. So the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the Father. And if the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, which means the power of the Father, it is the same power that God is going to raise us from the dead. So God purposed that in the resurrection of Christ, he would also unite us with him that we may partake of the new nature that is get a new heart, a new spirit, a new birth, a new creation, that we may walk, that is, that we may order our steps as those who have life and as those who are directed by a true knowledge of the living God. Amen. This baptism, as we are going to see in John 3, when Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. The last time I connected the point and said, the equivalent of that is to say, you must be circumcised from above. And this one is saying the same thing, you must be baptized from above. They're saying the same thing, you must be baptized from above. And in verse 10, the apostle says, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead, indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The death that the Lord died to sin, and you see there, it's not to sins. He died to sin. So sin here is personified as an individual being. An individual being who has to be killed, who has to be conquered. Sin has no last name. doesn't have a title. It's just sin. But the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's the Son of Man. He is Jesus the Christ. And there's Oprah. <laughs> I thought I'd just throw that one in for free. <laughs> the Lord died to sin once for all. What does that mean? This is not saying the Lord Jesus Christ died for the sins of all men. It's not saying the Lord Jesus Christ died for the sins of every man who ever lived. It's saying that by his one act of dying on the cross, he perfected the removal of sins that he does not need to do it again. The work of Christ on the cross was a one-time event, and it was perfected for the ones that he came to die for his ship. I know that's not popular. But that's what the text says. So in the light of that, the believer is to live after the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the pattern of the life of Jesus Christ is devotion and service to God. So we, because of the freedom that we have in Christ, knowing that your sins do not condemn you before God, knowing that your sins do not improve or reduce your standing before God. Your sins right now do not change the way that God looks at you. Your sin, if you believe in Christ, does not condemn you. It cannot condemn you. God cannot get angry at you. And God cannot punish you again for the sin that he has already punished in Christ. So thus comes the freedom of the gospel to say, yes, we stumble in many points, but we know that this sin shall not lead to death. My sins shall not lead to death. So he says, the believer then is to live with the hope that God has also immersed and baptized them into the resurrection and life of Christ. So we are living with this knowledge that God has placed us in the life of Christ. He has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Why? Because God already sees us as resurrected. And because he sees us as resurrected, he sees us as already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And in Colossians 3, 1-2, he says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. And in John, John 14, 2 and 3, he says, If in my Father's house are many mansions, if it were not so, I would not have told you I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The idea with all this is to say that when you get baptized, your hope goes beyond the forgiveness of sins. It goes to actually being with the Lord. So the consummation of your baptism is your getting joined and to be in the presence of the Lord himself. So he says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Shall we ever be with the Lord? So the apostle says in Romans 6, 12, we are coming to an end, 12 and 13, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So the apostle says, therefore, every time that you see a therefore, 
It means it's a conclusion, it's a conclude, it's setting up for you to have an understanding based on what has been argued before. So in the light of everything that I have shared with you, Apostle Paul says, therefore, this is how you have to live. This is your response to the things that I have said. Do not allow sin to come and reign in your life. Do not yield to the demands of sin. Rather, present the members of your body as instruments of righteousness, as those who are alive from the dead. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. That statement is just a mouthful. We need ten sermons on it. So the, the basis of all this argumentation, he says, for you, the believer, the reason why you should not allow sin to reign, the reason why you have to live not like the old man that you used to be. You see, the issue here is not the world. The issue is you and the old man. And the Lord says, because you know who you are in Christ, the basis of your knowledge of who you are in Christ is the basis of everything. But listen to this. It says, for you are not under the law, but under grace. The reason all this is true for the believer is because we are not under the law of Moses. But we are under the covenant of grace through Jesus Christ. The covenant of grace is the good news of the gospel because it actually gives a sinner a victory over sin. The law requires that you obey it by yourself. You have to know that. The law requires that you do the obedience 100% by yourself. You conquer. If for some reason you sin, you have to conquer the cross by yourself. And you have to conquer your own sin by yourself. And you have to resurrect yourself. But the gospel says it's all been done in our place by Jesus Christ. And Christ says it's finished. Christ died to sin once for all. Christ was raised from the dead and dies no more. And if death has no more dominion on Christ, sin has no more dominion over you to condemn you. For you to be conformed to its lust. So when the believer gets baptized. When the believer gets baptized in water. They are saying. I am now publicly declaring to you. That I identify with my Lord. Him who died. And him who was buried. And him who resurrected. And for everything that happened to him has already happened to me. And it was for my sake. And that is the believer's baptism. And that is the biblical teaching of the doctrine of baptism. Amen. Praise the Lord Jesus.
Uh, with that, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before the throne. Lord, as those who have been baptized into Jesus, as those who have experienced all the spiritual privileges that you've bestowed upon us in Christ. And Lord, our baptism, our water baptism is only an expression of the actual reality of the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ and of him also baptizing us with his Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you that because of our justification in Christ, we have the freedom. We have the freedom to live freely without fear of condemnation from the law or from anybody. The psalmist would say, what can men do to me? There's nothing that the law or men could do to God's people. Because Christ has perfected them. He died to sin once for all. And death has no more dominion over him. And it is also true with us. Because whatever he did, he did on our behalf. Lord, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for your people. That you have gathered to hear this message. For these are Christ's people. These are the ones that he came and died for. These are the ones that he got humiliated for. Even humiliation into the place of the dead. The one who possesses life finds himself in the place of the dead. And yet we know that it was impossible for him to be kept under the power of death. He had to rise because in him was no sin. Lord, we thank you. And we praise you for our own death and resurrection in Christ Jesus. And we pray now for the power of the gospel to be seen in the lives of your people. And as we read from the hymn, that we only have as much power as you give us. So, Lord, we pray for power. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.